man, we are so pleased to have Matt Eric to come and join us again. We're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. We covered, uh, it's all all about peace, progress, and prosperity. And we definitely um, appreciate his insights into the history last time on the Silk Road. And this time we're going to delve deeper into the history of Manifest Destiny. And uh, Brandy, anything to share? (laughs) No, no, I'm just looking forward to the jam. (laughs) I'm here to learn. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a lot of fun talking to you guys last uh it's like three, probably three or four weeks now but uh, it was it was good it was a good just riff we were able to to just playfully get across some some big lessons in universal history um and yeah i i am very happy to talk about manifest destiny today um and just sort of shed light maybe maybe unravel a little bit of the mystification um around it some of the emotional charge associated with it obviously manifest destiny is not something that most people in the 21st century have a very positive relationship to um but that is after all the the title i gave the third and final book of the current clash of the two americas trilogy which was uh the birth of a eurasian manifest destiny with a picture of ben franklin looking at you and behind ben franklin is the the China New Silk Road Belt and Road Initiative map with rail lines and development corridors um, stretching from east to west, even into Africa as a, and again, the idea being that we are now seeing a re-expression of a positive version of Manifest Destiny that had once animated some of the best progressive upshifts into prosperity, freedom, abundance that we have had in before we were all born, all three of us, I don't think ever like lived uh, through a world that was on the upshift. We all sort of were born into a, a, a process that was already kind of decaying. And I think that especially in recent years, that decay process has been accelerating here in the transatlantic community at the very least, though not everywhere in the world. We are, we are seeing a, a, an opposing process of uh qualitative growth occurring outside of and beyond the iron curtain which is quickly being erected separating again sort of east from west um once more so it's important for people i think to appreciate in order to appreciate what is actually going on on that other side of the iron curtain which is uh subject to a lot of slander a lot of reframing i mean many of those interests powerful interests that are controlling our perceptions how we interpret what is the motive of china of russia of iran um they're framing things to make these countries seem like the devil like it is these countries that are actually out to suppress subvert and destroy western civilization i would actually maintain and i think that the evidence uh, holds to what all three of us have come to discover is in fact that western civilization has been subverted through our own folly and an evil agenda, which has uh, taken control increasingly of our own societies here that once perhaps were champions or, or bastions of freedom. I think that America really was. I don't think it was a nation built upon hypocrisy as many jaded anarchists, you know, and, and post-structural modernists are being led to believe that America was actually never a good thing. It was always a nation built on slavery you have things like the New York Times 1619 project um, as one example of this poison that says, no, every single thing that seemed like it was being done for the good was really just being done to impose white uh, male dominated master slave structures of control onto all 
minority groups, native, black, woman, everything. And that's all human society, especially American uh, history has ever been. I would say, no, you, you do have that. You do have ugliness and you do have um, rich white uh, males doing bad things. That's true. Often using hypocrisy and virtue, virtuous words in order to sabotage the good and hurt people. That's true. But then to throw out the baby with the bathwater, paint all ideas that came out of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and Ben Franklin and Dante Alighieri as being all equally bad because they were white is a huge, huge misstep and mistake, which um, has happened. I think it's gotten a little bit too popular. So the idea of manifest destiny, we're going to go through that um, from its origins. Um, I think it, it's tough to say it's, it's origins origins because the idea goes back into ancient civilization. Um, so we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to look at its, its expression um, in the time of ancient Greece or, or Egypt. We will skip that for today. Um, but we will look at it, I think, from the standpoint of, let's say, the uh, a, a good starting point for this exercise, because we talked about Charlemagne, the, the ecumenical alliance of the Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Confucian, Buddhist uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesomeness <laughs> yeah, yeah. of the of the uh, second uh, uprise uh, expression of the Silk Road under the Tang Dynasty. We talked about that in our last discussion. So this time, let's take a a shift because that disappeared. It was it devolved in in a process of in the age of chaos. Right, that that beautiful ecumenical alliance lasted probably no more than about 120 years in a strong way, and afterwards. It disassembled itself under imperial manipulation, divide to conquer wars, getting small people with small ideas and small identities to make stupid decisions about the future that sabotage themselves and their children and grandchildren, like launching the Crusades, um, which involved the Crusaders, these mercenaries, taking over the trade routes that had been pioneered oh. by the Radonite traders um, on the Silk Road. That's what was, it was the Silk Road corridors that were taking control of that became the lines for the first and second uh, crusades that basically started creating a bloodbath of where, where allies used to exist between Christians and Muslims. Um, this only got worse. And in China, there was a, uh, an onslaught, the Venetians, which were at the heart of a lot of this evil, this was a lot of the, the ruling families of Rome that had wished to maintain their, their survival after the, the collapse of Rome and the, the onslaught of the, the Visigoths and the Huns, um, and other Germanic tribes had pretty much, you know, making, they, 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 they torn, they basically came in and, and, and tore Western, um, Rome, the Western Empire to shreds. Um, a lot of the ruling families, they, they preserved their wealth, their lives, and they moved, they migrated to a new, more strategic center of command called Venice. And uh, they sort of reconstituted themselves. And it was at, this is at the heart of the control of global bullying, global uh, silver. And it was this that originally started off as the junior partner of the Eastern Byzantine Empire, but very quickly after a few hundred years, ended up subverting the, their older brother, of Byzantium and ended up becoming the dominant global geopolitical force controlling again, like I said, banking, running, funding all sides of religious wars, um, maritime trade routes once they overthrew Byzantium um, in uh, 1252 or so, 
Byzantium. Uh, so, Matt, so Matt, that's right around the Erdogrel time then, right there. It's exactly around that same Erdogrel time. I didn't do the research though into into figuring out exactly what yeah, the world was. Yeah, right on. <laughs> I've been enjoying that series. Great show. It's a super, super healthy show. Yeah. That being said, I don't know about the real Erdogrel or right. I, nobody I does. Know. Yeah. But certainly that was a good a good use of we're for anybody listening and and confused, uh there's a there's a very good, very I think it's like a 500 episode long Turkish, <laughs> Turkish show that uh, has really wonderful values and political insights called Air to Gruel, yes. uh, which we've all been watching. And it's, it's quite good. Um, that yeah, tells the story. You, you got to love that sheet character, huh? The way he comes in there, he's putting all the blessings on everybody. Oh, there's so many characters at this point. I, I, I'm starting yeah, to. You know what? Yeah, the one that he kept coming in, Erdogan's the Sheik, and he would oh, come in, yeah, right? The spiritual guy. The wise old man. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, man. He's our court for sure. <laughs> uh, what's his name now? Oh, it's been too long. I'm forgetting names. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but all I have to say, yeah, you, you had a, a process um, whereby after the Fourth Crusade, um, which utilized a bunch of, again, mercenary, um, mercenary soldiers from France, from Germany in the, in the 1250s. Venice was able to initiate, um, the destruction of Constantinople, which was a, a weird anomaly because a lot of people trying to figure out what the hell is the fourth crusade all about. And I'm saying all this to get it manifest destiny. I promise. Sure. You, but, um, sure. they don't quite get how those those christian mercenaries never ended up making it to the promised land they didn't fight any jews or uh sorry they didn't fight any uh, muslims or arabs or anything they ended up just simply uh destroying two christian cities one of them being constantinople occupied by christians completely looted and pillaged them and brought most of the loot back to venice um and coming out of that, Venice got control of all of Byzantium's former trade routes that it had controlled over land and of sea. And they came out of that process as now the global indisputable force of power, um, which it maintained itself for another 300 or 400 years in uh, in that form. Um, now, one of the interesting things is that Venice also was the only European power that had a monopoly over the trade routes of Mongolian territories. And Mongolia, I mean, most people were thinking in a Eurocentric, maybe Mediterranean, North African limitation. They couldn't think beyond that, whereas these higher level imperialists and grand strategists located in, in Venice were certainly thinking globally. They were thinking on a much longer wave than most. And, the, and Asia was a big part of their calculus. Um, the, the, the fear of the rise of a new Chinese-led Renaissance, which is what happened with the Tang Dynasty's revival in 680 of the Silk Road after 400 years of decay and collapse and war in, in Asia, um, this was a great fear that this would happen again. And the Song Dynasty um, was a high, a very high level candidate to bring this, this about. It was one of the highest points of science, of accomplishment of the arts, of painting, of poetry in Chinese history was in the Song Dynasty period. And that had to be crushed and destroyed. Similarly, I think you, you had similar Renaissance traditions being expressed beautifully in India. Um, that had to be crushed. And the Mongols became in many ways a bit of a battering ram, both to destroy these positive dynamics in Eurasia, uh, sorry, yeah, in Eurasia, Asia. Um, again, with the Venetians providing a lot of the intel, they had the most refined, sophisticated intelligence network, because when you control all of the shipping lanes of all of the courts, you also control all of the mail, 
right? You can then oversee and have a good mapping of what everybody is thinking. They've got a high integrated network of um, ambassadors and spies embedded in all of the different courts from Kiev and Rus all the way down into Africa and, and Turkey. And everybody in Europe has these Venetian ambassadors and their spies and on the payroll embedded within the courts, right? So they have a good mapping and a good technique of psychological profiling, both the group dynamics of courts as well as individual power players. Where are the weaknesses? And they were able to then utilize this knowledge in order to induce uh, potential allies to fight each other. This is what Shakespeare is is yeah. showcasing in his Othello, for example, with the character of Iago, yeah, right. um, who's a Venetian-based character who is utilizing this Venetian technique. And Shakespeare is making this very accessible, both for the elites of England who need to understand this, which is why Shakespeare is primarily doing this, because um, they're being played. Um, keep in mind what's going on in Shakespeare's England is there's a Venetian parasitical takeover, um, you know, 1601, 1602. This is King James, who's a Rosicrucian mystic freak into the occult, who's being advised by a variety of Venetian ambassadors and Venetian spies. And there's, you know, there's a fight in Shakespeare's England to keep this parasite from taking over the British host. Britain was not a fully fledged empire at that time. Um, it, it still had, it, you know, people around Shakespeare wanted to preserve and Christopher Marlowe, who might've been the same person, wanted to preserve the better humanistic Augustinian traditions, the platonic Augustinian traditions of people like Erasmus, Thomas More, and, and utilize their idea of, um, of, of having a civilizational building system with colonies in the Americas, which is what Jamestown was all about as the first British colony. So you see, I'm getting at the, the manifest destiny right now. Uh, they, they wanted to have that as the, the, the foundation of a new type of civilization that could take the best of the human experience, but far enough removed from the rot and corruption of the old oligarchical families of Europe that had just embedded their, their poison so deeply that it was difficult to get the space you needed to have the, the type of patient process of spiritual, psychological, physical growth that would be required for a new type of a natural law to express itself with, with a, a, a mature human being that could arise finally actualizing as much of their potential as possible, which again requires that, that, that those people not be starving, not be at war with each other, have access to knowledge, literacy, have access to the better uh, the best learning available to civilization. You have to have these things in order for the, 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 the the individuals in your society, especially those who are not born into rich families, but everybody, um, discover the higher joys and pleasures beyond the flesh. Because we're all going to find pleasure out of fleshly sensations and food and sex and other things. But the but to discover the pleasures of the mind, uh, that is not a guarantee that we all have access to. So to give people enough of those experiences to love wisdom as a joy, um, again, requires a sort of climate, a protective climate. Right. Where you can, you can give people that space. So the Americans, the, the newly discovered American colonies, um, which unfortunately were being subverted quite a bit by some of the, the, the worst elements of the Spanish, Spanish and, and Portuguese, but especially the Spanish uh, empire. There were good elements too. Don't get me wrong. They weren't all, you know, again, it, it's this, like I said at the beginning, like the, this oversimplification thing, like we're often told, oh, every white European male, right. uh, is all di just destruction and destructive uh, and hip hypocritical liars. 
and the same thing is applied to the the Spanish um, colonialists too. And it's like, no, they're good colonialists, good Spanish uh, representatives, and bad ones. You know, rapist mercenaries and, and Pizarros, and then good people who actually cared about uh, all human beings being being made and created equal in the eyes of God and and made in the image of the Creator's creative forces. There was right. both. There was a fight. So anyway, um, what you had was an effort to do that. Um, the, the, the Venetians, like I said, to jump back in time, I'm, I'm going to jump a little bit, but it'll be organized. It won't be chaotic. I promise. So to go back to what we were saying. So Venice had control. They used their, their Mongol hordes. Um, I think largely in exchange for British intelligence. Cause how did these, these un, unsophisticated, uncultured Mongolian, um, warriors develop such an aptitude for taking the most sophisticated, um, uh, uh, courts and of, of Europe and, and Africa and, and everywhere they touched, they were able to be very successful and effective in destroying India and, and, and China as well. And so I think this couldn't have been done had it not been for Venetian assistance on a variety of levels, primarily intelligence, also undoubtedly banking and, and monetary uh, uh, elements too. So, and probably a lot of sabotage from within the courts uh, of Europe. Uh, I'm, I'm pr- pretty sure that that probably played a role as well. So anyway, um, China was largely sabotaged. Um, the danger of a, a the, the, the new Silk Road kind of at a certain point was able to blossom a little, little bit in 1420 when you had Admiral uh, Zheng He, right, conduct his famous uh, exploratory civilizational uh, voyages from China all the way to Africa. And you had these giant galleons that were like 10 times bigger than the biggest ships that the Europeans could make with the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa, Santa Maria. These things were like baby little trolleys compared to these massive galleons that the Chinese were producing. And, uh, and it wasn't done for conquering. They didn't conquer anybody. They literally, it was all about trade, bringing elephants from Africa back to China, providing spices, knowledge, communication skills, all sorts of things. So it was a real, um, blossoming in the, in the form of the, the maritime Silk Road. We don't know the story, but something happened around 1430, 1440 in China, um, where it was all aborted. All of these ships, every galleon was turned to, uh, firewood, um, and it was just completely scrapped. Oh. And again, I think that's for future historians to piece together what the hell that was all about. Huh. But undoubtedly, um, there's there's going to be a connection that we'll find between the East and the West and what was going on in Europe at the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure probably has some connection. In Europe, though, you were going through a dark age. Um, there were There were efforts to try to reverse it. But overall, Europe had collapsed into a... All prolonged, starting with the, uh, the, the 14th century, 1350 or so, uh, was the first real plunge, the collapse of the, the, the Bardi and Peruzzi banking houses, which were tied to Venetian central command structures. They collapsed when you had a big debt bubble <laughs> that was blown up and a, and a British king, um, decided that he had to default on the debts that he, uh, had owed some of these, uh, Bardi and Peruzzi banking houses, I think in the form of sheep's wool or something. Couldn't pay it. It was usurious. And he defaulted. And when he defaulted, there was a chain reaction of a lot of other kings defaulting and a lot of the other debt obligations going up in smoke. And these houses that had been around for hundreds of years all collapsed. And with their collapse came a collapse of commerce, 
more broadly, it spread beyond the, the, the domain of Italy to all of Europe. With the collapse of commerce came also a collapse of sanitation, a collapse of employment, a collapse of a whole bunch of things that we take for granted. And an age of war, uh, it's called the Dark Age for a reason, right? We, we yeah. forgot things we used to know. Yeah, the Hundred Years' War was right in there. Yeah, that, that takes off around this time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's that's now yeah between France and Britain. That's that's correct. And um, and and the plagues, the plagues. Yeah, you got a petri dish now all of a sudden, right? So all sorts of weird, no sanitation. Uh, that's where it comes throwing from. Throwing bodies know? in the water. They don't know how to deal with this right. stuff. And and you know, at a certain point, there is a, a plague that does wipe out something like almost half of Europe. I mean, it's a huge number. So. Yeah, um, it's crazy. And this goes on for a while with little ups and downs, but overall it's, it's, a, it's a pretty dire situation. And, um, coming out of this process, there's a, there's a new idea. Um, Dante Alighieri, mm. who had died around, uh, 13, around 1320 or so. Uh, Dante Alighieri had been a bastion of trying, of, of Renaissance. He's like a one, an army of one in, <laughs> uh, in Florence. And he was really tr- working so hard. Huh. to uh fix this problem he embodied the best he internalized the best of platonic dialogues augustinian dialogues and he just lived it internalized it and became the person who not only uh unified the italian language created a new and improved uh uh language that could unify the people because nobody could speak with each other since all of the 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 divided to conquered society uh, groupings of people living in italy were all speaking local little mini dialects and they oh, couldn't yeah. even understand each other so you couldn't really do anything as a coordinated, concerted action together as a people, let alone have a common identity of something beyond your little mini family or community right. unit. People couldn't develop that. Right. So that's what his uh, okay. his uh, his works, especially the Divine Comedy, were all about doing, um, as well as his uh, – he did works on uh, on, on the, the vulgar uh, language. Uh, but, but basically, he did a lot of work on poetry to, to find the best elements of all of the different dialects and create a, a higher unifying, something more than the sum of its parts, which worked. It took a while for it to blossom, but it worked. He also set into motion, while he was a high official in Florence, a process to build what later became about 200 years after he died. It was finally finished, this project, but it was begun under him of the Santa Maria del Fiore uh, Dome. Uh, this, mm. this giant, giant right. Mason dome, yeah, which yeah. to this very day is the, the biggest dome, um, on the earth made, uh, like the biggest Mason dome. We've not been able to figure out how they did it. Even today, we don't know. The best engineers today can't figure out how they made this thing stand without that? any internal girdings or any internal uh, supports. It's purely based upon its own, uh, geometry. Its own weight was, was configured in such a way that this thing could stand. And, Part of the reason why Dante put this challenge into motion was to give people sort of like a, it's like an Apollo space program, pyramid, multi-generational mission, right? You got to give people a mission to organize the best of their talents, to go outside of their their limitations, to discover things that they don't know, because there was no solution to doing this. It wasn't just half a half a, a, an orb. That wasn't going to work. It had to be something else. So, and it also had to be tied to beauty. So a whole city of of Florence was built around the dome. It was all reorganized um, with with a certain common aesthetic of proportion of harmony and and everything else, right? So science, music, architecture, beauty, the golden section, all of these things, as well as astronomy, there's an astronomical component to the the Santa Maria del Fiore that was finalized finally by Brunelleschi 
many, many years later that involves uh, a, a certain a hole at the top of the dome that allows you to um, um, measure eclipses and other things. It's a, it's a, it's a fun configuration. It, anyway. Actually, I've been to that dome, but I've learned more from you than from actually being there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I learned. I learned. I, all, I learned my most girlfriend, and it was beautiful. And I was like, "Wow!" Now I'm like, "Oh man, I wish I paid more attention." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was Cynthia who did this great, great presentation on the dome, uh, like seven or eight years ago. That blew me away. That, that's like what got my my engine revved on this. And uh, excuse me. And uh, yeah, like when you look at what ideas and what fights occurred underlying some of these beautiful things we take for granted it just it's shocking right and, and people like this became a um an incubator for geniuses like leonardo da vinci this was his school like a young da vinci in his in his night no he's 15 16 17 working in this environment with thousands of other workers um over the course of 150 years that had been going on to do this thing involved studying new uh designs of machinery because you had to be able to to you know bring the workers up there bring them down bring their food up um you got to be do so many other things there were hundreds of machines invented just to make this task possible and he was the guy who even designed the the golden orb that was finally installed as the very last step on top of the brunelleschi dome it was da vinci who designed and and created the machinery to pull it up and install it at the very top so again it was it was real incubator for genius um which again was premised around the concept that we could go always outside of ourselves. We are not what you see. So people are like, well, what are humans? There are they these, these dumb, ignorant, you know, useless eaters, just like, cause if you just use your eyes and you just talk to dumb people, and unfortunately we've been very dumbed down. So we encounter far too many dumb people in our society who are far less than what they could be. You can easily get very depressed. You'd be like, ah, and, and maybe even very uh, misanthropic, like, ah, human beings, bleh. Right. You know, there, there really are too many of us. <laughs> that's, that's an easy conclusion to make. But then when you have a project that is so multi-generational and beautiful like that, you, you find that human beings are actually premised on their ability to go from worse to better, right? We can all, all human beings have this power of changing and, and, and we can know that because we've changed, right? We've been through that process and because we have, we could see it in others. Even if they have, those others haven't been through those processes, we can see that the potential is there. And that's what we love about people all of a sudden. It, it awakens that. So this going beyond yourself, going beyond your limits was something which oligarchs at that time despised and were afraid of because they wanted us to be the talking cows satisfied to live on a, on an estate, on a feudal Lord's plantation or whatever, um, to be managed, um, as the, as the Lord, um, sitting in their castle desired and kids, especially born of poor families, were not supposed to have access to the knowledge of, of ancient Greek classics or literacy in general. They shouldn't know those things. That's for the reserved for the upper crust only. Right. Um, so all of this was being challenged. And so with that came an idea also of natural law, that that if human beings actually have this self-perfectibility embedded within our, our soul, then we know by living proof that we're made thus in the image of a creator. It's not just a philosophical theory. It's like, Oh, look at that. Look what we're doing. You know, these, look at these beautiful, (laughs) this beautiful artwork, look at these beautiful discoveries that, you know, children who weren't born of rich families are discovering as they grow up, you know? So that became a living scientific proof of our having been made in God's image and, and thus also capable and mandated to participate in God's creation. So coming out of this, we had things like the, the 15th century, the 1438 Council of Florence, 
which was a real serious effort to unify the church that had been schismed around the concept again of the filioque that that the that the spirit uh emanated both through the father and through the son um that we could then sort of identify with something that is both mortal and also divine within ourselves by the role model of a, of a, of a figure like Christ who was able to die for us. So that concept for on the identity, you got to get your, your, yourself in the, in the mind of people living in that time who were so disempowered to all of a sudden have that cathartic sense that there's this, you know, we're both, we're, we're, we're all a little bit of, of both, right? The, a little bit of divine, a little bit of beast. And it's a matter of wisdom that allows us to, to cult, to feed. It's like they say that the, what, right. We we're all battling these two wolves, but which wolf is going to win, you know, the, it's the wolf that you feed. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, I think a native American story, yeah. but it's, it, it falls in alignment. It's the same idea. Yeah. Um, so the, the concept of, of people like Cusa, who was an organizer of the council of Florence was he wrote a, a whole treatise inspired by the Demonarchia of Dante. Mm. Um, and, and Cusa's treatise was called the Concordancia Catholica the universal church. And, and in it, he lays out the terms of uh, self-government that all people all, cre- all are created equal, regardless if you're king or you're peasant, you're made equal in the eyes of God. And thus the, the mandate of law is premised around the will of the governed, the consent of the governed that infuses the authority into law and that kings are thus within that, that formula, um, simply servants, mm. instruments of a loving God's grace and not, themselves a power unto themselves right the the law's authority doesn't come from the the consent of the king to give or to take away our rights it came from the consent of the people and the king thus can has either the authority or not based upon his in, infringement upon that mandate of heaven there's a similar concept that's the mandate of heaven concept actually actually of china of, of confucian oh, yeah. philosophy right yeah. that, that the laws of the state are only good to the degree that they conform to the mandate of heaven and otherwise the, the citizen has both the freedom and duty to overthrow those laws that are in defiance of the mandate of heaven. And any emperor that, that does so has lost his, his right to rule. Right. Um, so you can see how this would definitely infuse, this is why Ben Franklin loved Confucius, why he was translating Confucius's right. writings for the yeah. American colonists, because yeah. he was resonating to the same thing. And, and you could see it blossom with the ideals of the American revolution later on. So Obviously, there were certain very good attempts to manifest, actualize this in Europe, and it took the form of the Golden Renaissance, but it was short-lived. There were a lot of, again, the Venetian parasite came back in full force, working mm. to get their these these different uh, neighboring, you know, early nation states of Europe to fight each other for no real good reason, and that created a climate that was not favorable to the growth of Renaissance processes. Um, still some did happen, but it was, it was getting weaker and weaker. We don't have to go into the ins and outs of that, but what we do know, going back to what I was saying about Shakespeare, um, this was now leaping ahead a hundred and what 16, he was operating between 1591 and 1618. I think he dies. It was a very dense period. Um, where the question is, is, is the hope of a, of a new Renaissance civilization for humanity going to finally be destroyed or will it have a, a chance? And if it is going to have a chance, it's going to be by, again, like I was saying earlier, right? Getting it as far removed from the rot of Europe as possible. And so the colonies, the colonial efforts were a big uh, point of hope at that point. And it was not again about intrinsically just bringing black slaves from Africa via the Portuguese or whatever else. It was not about suppressing the natives of either South or North America. It wasn't about that. 
Um, there were things like that that did happen, as I mentioned. I, you don't want to discount that, but that's not what it was about. Um, now, the, the Jamestown colony turned into a bit of a, a basket case. There was one colony, though, in 1620 that was that was able to work out and succeed in ways that other efforts had failed. And that was another British colony called uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. John Winthrop. Yeah. John Winthrop. Yeah. Who arrived in Mayflower. And, uh, and there was constant communications between John Winthrop, uh, the Mathers family and the Winthrops early on were champions and defenders of this idea that the new society would be like a city on a hill. That's, that was the founding constitution, right? And it would not be a, this is the origins of, of the manifest destiny idea in the modern form, in the American form, that America would not be, uh, an empire or Pax, um, you know, Roma, Romana, Romana, not be a Pax Americana to right. suppress and subvert the weak, but it would be a city on a hill, a beacon to demonstrate just what an effective expression of civilization looks like so that others will want to uh, emulate right, the yeah. good. And that's the right way of doing things, you know, and, and that's the right way I think a teacher does operates too in a schoolroom, right? Like an, right. an unaffected teacher is kind of like an imperialist or a tyrant who will. Right. Just, <laughs> we all had them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they'll demand behavioral modifications from the students according to pleasure and pain and fear. Um, and a good teacher is somebody who just simply is kind of like a student and the students trust the teacher because they can see that this, the teacher is open to learning new things and is being playful. And is just being a, an effective, good human being. And the kids are like, oh, I admire that. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> so that's sort of what, what good, good statecraft is too. And, um, that's where it originally sort of got a hold, like a, 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 a good fertile soil. And in Britain, this was a point of, of tumult. You know, there, there was a Republican revolution in Britain for about a decade under Cromwell. Mm-hmm. There was the, uh, uh, a Protestant revolution, right. which cut off the king's head, Philip II, I think, but it might have a different Philip, might have a different name. Um, but the king lost his head, and a, a Republic of Britain was declared. But it was a it was a messy situation. There was an under an under ripened uh, process. They tried to pluck the fruit before it was too ripe. This is why Ben Franklin, you appreciate him so much more. That's why Ben Franklin is on two of the covers of my three books because when you look at his brilliance he had the patience to not pluck the fruit before it was ripe he Uh, knew and played a key role from 1720s when he's a young guy being recruited by john winthrop um into the this um american intelligentsia operation and from that very early age you know his brother his oldest brother who he ends up working for in a printing house in philadelphia his older brother is a hellfire club devotee his older brother is recruited to the hellfire club I didn't know that. Yeah. And, uh, and he had already been, um, recruited much even when he was, I think it was back in 1710, he first meets John Winthrop when he's just a little kid and, and Winthrop just sees this kid who, you know, like just eats up books by the age of three, he's like reading books and he's like, wow, this kid's something else. And he like gives him access to his library and he's there every day. And, and Winthrop and, 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 you know, his colleagues are just in awe that not John Winthrop, uh, Cotton Mather. I'm sorry. I'm calling him John Winthrop, but I, I meant to be saying Cotton Mather. Your father. Yeah. Yeah. We're now in 17, not 16. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I'm, no worries. So yeah. Cotton Mather is the man. He's the, like the top, the top guy at this point. But he was influenced by Winthrop. He was influenced by Winthrop. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were all, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, Cotton Mather rec- recruits young Ben Franklin 
And, uh, and so Ben Franklin's brother is a big problem uh, because there are these British controlled, the, the Hellfire Club is kind of like the, it's worse than the Epstein Island. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's worse than that. And it's really like, <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like, yeah, the satanic cults that was brought into the upper crust nobility uh, of, of England. That was sort of the gateway of corruption through which the Venetians were use, using to take control of the courts of England at that time was through the Hellfire Clubs, um, doing all sorts of weird stuff in caves. Even today, there's like some of the caves that have been preserved with the Irish branch. Um, they were kind of nominally illegalized in 1720, but they just continued and they went underground doing the same thing with the same elites. Um, no wonder anyway. why they like their Bohemian Grove so much. It reminds <laughs> them of that. You well, know? the Bohemian Grove really is that. I think. Yeah. yeah. I think so. And, uh, yeah. So they, they had, they had, uh, franchises, uh, branching off into the Americas mm. and Philadelphia, which was sort of the, the humanist beachhead. That's where John, uh, I think it was James Franklin, who was the, the older brother, mm. um, had been recruited and because he had a printing press. He oh. was, it was a high power in those days, you know, no internet that the printing press is the key for thought control. Um, good for good or for bad. So, um, ben Franklin was assigned to both work under and get intel, like work under his brother, figure out what the hell is going on. Um, he was always abused and he talks about it in his autobiography. He he never says, see, that's the thing about Ben Franklin. He's so careful. He never says openly what he thinks. He, he's the master of real politic. Um, he knows how the world works. And he's 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 brought into essentially counterintelligence. And early on, in, I think it's 1724, he um, is deployed to conduct counterintelligence in Britain, directly in the Hellfire Club. And he alludes to this in his, again, his autobiography. He indirectly talks about his experience in Britain, how he uh, met with Sir Mandeville, Bernard Mandeville. And uh, and he really wanted to meet Sir Isaac Newton, but Isaac Newton wasn't uh, making himself available, available. But he was like spending a couple of years hobnobbing um, with some of the most high level nasty nasty bastards you could imagine um there's a book that really inspired me and helped me make sense yeah, of how the this. nation was one you said right that's the book yeah Who, who's, who's the author of that yeah. book i never caught the author of that graham lowry um let me just graham lowry okay fair enough yeah uh yeah i even got two copies of this thing it's so good um <laughs> you mentioned yeah. It. Yeah. how the nation was that's one right. Yeah. America's untold story from 1630 to 1754 okay. and Graham Lowry unfortunately uh, passed away before he could finish volume two so that's up to future historians to finish volume two but it really pieces this whole story together masterfully yeah um so Ben Franklin just to get across like what what's the difference between the British failed Republican revolution in 1640 versus the successful or more successful American attempt in 1776 is that Ben Franklin had the, the, the insight to um, create cultural institutions that would upshift the overall psycho-spiritual level of the citizens of, of the Americas who were not capable of self-government in the 1720s or 1730s. It's not like he didn't want them to be free, but the culture didn't allow for the type of development that you would require for people to know why they should die for the cause of freedom. That type of identity is not easy to come by. Um, so to do that requires, you know, people who, who are humble yet who are smart. And those two things together usually 
cr- collapse. They, they usually cancel each other out. <laughs> so to do that well, usually when you get smart, you get arrogant, right? You lose your humility. Uh, when you're dumb, you're more humble, but you're dumb. So it's, you're useless. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the question is, how do you, how do you make both blossom? So you're wise as a serpent and soft as a dove, as the old saying goes from the Bible. Uh, you got to get people in a state of wonder. And so in his, in, in Ben Franklin's juntas, which he sets up as sort of like, he's like, we got to create cadres and, and cadres that could teach cadres, right? People who are both learners and teachers at the same time. He would, uh, founded this thing with course, a committee of correspondences all over the different colonies and different people who would then organize around problems, scientific problems. Why is it, why does one big one was like, why does a flame always move in the form of a cone, right? Mm-hmm. What, what's your theory? Well, what about certain weather phenomenon? Can you come up with theories? And they would meet up after like a month with their various theories. They would give treatises. They would speak to each other and, and try to come up with solution concepts to natural problems. What is What is electricity? Why, you know, why does it behave a certain way? Why is it whenever, you know, you have a, a glass ball that you like spin with a feather and then you, you touch your neighbor, you can get an, uh, your, your neighbor gets an electric shock. Why is that? Um, what, what's that say about the nature of the, is it within the, the glass that's causing that? Is it in the motion of the feather? What, what's causing that? Right. Is that have anything to do with what's going on in the clouds um, when there's a rainstorm? So these sorts of questions just expanded the mind into a state of like a, a, a culture of wonder was able to sort of blossom. And within that environment, wisdom started forming itself around trusted colleagues that he could start trusting and working with. Um, he started creating institutions like libraries. He was the first one to do that, post offices. Mm-hmm. Um, he created the first Canadian post office. Uh, newspapers for the masses. He created the Canadian newspaper, the Montreal Gazette. That was Ben Franklin, <laughs> not a Canadian. Um, beautiful irony. And, you know, fire departments. Um, he He you know, made sure that these things organized. So you created like a, a different type. And also he promoted the idea of, of um, paper script and colonial script specifically, the idea of, of, of each colony having the ability to emit paper script for the purpose of stimulating manufacturing and, and internal developments. That was part of his 1729 uh, on the necessity for a paper script uh, report. This had been done based on uh, his studies under John Winthrop of what John Winthrop had been fighting for and had lived. Or Mathers, Cotton Mathers. Cotton Mathers, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, had been fighting for regarding the, the earlier colonial script of the 1640s that had funded the, the Saugus Ironworks, for example, in the 1640s and 50s in Massachusetts that had outproduced even Britain's iron uh, production systems. And this was, I think, done because Britain had their own, um, Republican revolution. So the good side of the, the Republican revolution of Britain is it created such a state of tumult and chaos on the one hand that there was no ability for the oligarchy to put its priorities on maintaining control, its iron fist over its, the outskirts, right? It had to just focus on trying to get back control of what it was losing in the, uh, the capital. Right. So that, 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 that instability worked in favor of the, the Renaissance process. And also I would say that, uh, there were good people. There was John Milton, who was a, a very noble, good soul, mm-hmm. uh, who was a high level, not just a poet, but a political official within the, the Republican government and many good people. Um, the problem was again, there was, there was uh, people whose minds were not properly, uh, developed enough to understand the sophistication of the, the Anglo Venetian intelligence operations that had been that would use well-hearted dumb people to conduct, to, to carry out uh, 
uh, destruction and chaos, kind of like what we have today with Black Lives Matter or other totally groups. a lot of good-hearted people who just yeah. don't understand what the hell they're they're they don't know of. what they're backing. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I have no clue. Um, so they become kind of Jacobin. Um, and yeah. it became a bit of a, you know, Christian versus Catholic bloodbath thing, injustices, and the whole thing just petered out. And worship of but, injustice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eye for an eye stuff. It just never works. And, and, um, mm. so in the case of the Americas, you, you didn't have a lot of these Catholic versus Protestant issues. You had different, some sects of Christians, but overall people were, were all relatively on the same page as first and foremost being citizens, uh, pioneers trying to figure out and eke out, you know, it's a very difficult thing to build a society where you have wilderness swamps or, you know, breeding grounds for, for disease. And it's, it's not easy um, to drain a swamp and to make, you know, the wilderness livable. Um, So this was like something that, again, brought people into a, a a type b personality type you know they weren't they weren't people who you couldn't survive if you were just a compliant uh pleasure seeker you would you would be right. not, be not long for this earth <laughs> so you oh, had wow. to sort of be a little like find your your the, the thing that leaps outside of yourself that that personality type had to had to exist and so ben franklin's discovery of electricity was was part of this process he's like look people he he knew that he had important philosophical under views, but he knew that it couldn't grow if he didn't do something impossibly important. So he had to prove himself to, to sort of make his political views or ideas uh, resonate. He had to ac- create a big accomplishment in science, and he put his focus on the question of electricity. So without a university education, I mean, I think it was grade three education, he was able to, through a pure heart and a rigorous mind and the ability to uh, playfully let go of, or or be humble enough to let go of false hypotheses. He was be he was able to be much more effective at making breakthroughs about the nature of electricity than all of the greatest minds of Europe, um, who were just too arrogant to make a discovery. And he trumped everybody, and he did it, and he did it in a way that was tied to both um, finding useful application, like the the lightning rod preserved thousands of homes and barns and everything else, um, but he. He, he, he invented personally hundreds of new inventions. He innovated, he pioneered the, the, the idea of patents so that every person could take, uh, pride and also benefit financially from great ideas that they would have. That was not a thing before Ben Franklin. Um, that was the foundation of a viable real form of capitalism was the mind had to be the key that made value work and the behavior of money and profit is always tied to that understanding that the mind um, is the sacred primary thing that gives and infuses value and creates new resources by being leaping outside of old systems of, of false thinking or limited thinking. Sure. So he, he then like became a cele- an international celebrity in, in France. They were calling him the Prometheus of Europe. You know, the, 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 the demigod that stole fire from Zeus after a drunken orgy and gave it to him because <laughs> he saw the, you know, and, and, and Aeschylus is Prometheus bound uh, prometheus eloquently describes how you know his motive even though he's accepting torture for his defiance of zeus's law he uh he says you know like it's my it's my joy to still take this torture because i i see this potential in humankind as being more than what they are and uh, that's why he fire it's not just fire it's also mathematics astronomy and poetry everything came with fire um in in the story of aeschylus so that's what they called ben franklin um, and he stole, he kind of did, right? He took the fire from the sky, right? The fire of the gods. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and he did uh, share that with humankind. 
um, the elites were enamored by him. Like, you know, all of these aristocrats of France were just like, wow, <laughs> he was super funny as well. Um, so all of the, the young damsels in, in, uh, in the French courts were all like, oh, Monsieur Franklin. <laughs> so, you know, so he was like super, super clever and, uh, and, and tons of charisma. And he went over, he was a diplomatic mastermind and he was able to win over, uh, leading princes, later Marquis de Lafayette, even the king. Uh, he inspired and, and created allies with the greatest scientists of Europe, like Jean Sylvain Bailly, the, the greatest astronomer of France who became the mayor of, of uh, Paris. And also mm-hmm. the, the, the person who was in charge of the, the L'Assemblée Nationale that declared the tennis court oath, the, the, on the universal rights of, of man in the, later on in 1789 in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lavoisier, the great chemist, um, was also a part of this political process. who was a, a Ben Franklin correspondent, but he also had, had allies that he built up throughout the courts of, of Russia, like, uh, Ekaterina Dashkova, who yeah. was the only, uh, female president of the Russian Academy of Sciences in 1780. She was a close ally of Catherine the Great. And, uh, she became the first member of Ben Franklin's Philosophical Society while he was, uh, a, an ambassador in France. That's fascinating. Yeah, and he in turn became the first American who was inducted into the Russian Academy of Sciences that's under. Right, that's right. Uh, and so, you know, he was able to organize the League of Armed Neutrality, led by Russia during the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, he organized the Moroccan through the French ambassadors in uh, Morocco. He was able to organize em- em- mm-hmm. Ambassador Sidi Mohammed to provide protection to the uh, the American fleets throughout the the American Revolution. Six years long, right? Uh, against other bar- like Barbary pirates who are usually under the payroll and direction of the Anglo-Venetian intelligence. Mm. Um, he had the French as well doing diplomatic maneuvers in in India with the Mysores. It was uh, Admiral uh, Souffrant uh, who was in charge of French uh, diplomatic relations on the ground in the southern India Mysore uh, region, where he worked closely with uh, Hyder Ali the the Indian uh, revolutionary and, and his son Tipu Sultan and together Tipu Sultan and, and Hyder Ali his father um, waged war for years throughout the 1780s 90s against the British and wrote letters to the Continental Congress saying our your war is our war we're 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 together in creating a new civilization for humanity and there's a Muslim leader right telling the Christian early founding fathers we're we're one and, and doing so absorbed 20 percent of the British naval fleets that were supposed to all go towards suppressing the American revolution. They couldn't now do that. They had to be redirected to India um, where they got their asses kicked <laughs> for a long time. Mm. You know? um, so that's another wonderful irony, rich, rich irony. Unreal. Yeah. Super nice. Uh, and yeah, yet also Irish, amazing Irish uh, generals who all devoted because they had, they had their own um, Republican revolution attempt in the 16, 16- I want to say 1680s in Ireland, which was suppressed violently by the British. But they, the, the Republican uh, culture, the best, the best culture, cultural dynamics were preserved in Ireland, which is why the British despise the Irish so much and have have treated the Irish so badly, is because they're trying to crush this defiant, yeah. Right. yeah, that goes back, I think, to like St. Patrick in the uh, the Book of Kells period, you know, yeah, uh, the Irish. <laughs> And, uh, and so Ben Franklin had a lot to work with internationally. And the idea was that after it would be a success in, in the Americas, it would, it would replicate itself. 
in first in France, and then it, you had you had networks in Spain ready to go. You had networks in in Prussia ready to go, in Poland ready to go, in uh, uh, Ireland obviously uh, that that did go. I mean, some of them did did try. In uh, 1798, you had the Irish Revolution, which was suppressed and put down because there was because the French failed. If the French had succeeded, it, it would have immediately gone off in, in Poland with French support that was needed with Marquis Lafayette as president. You can only imagine, right? Um, and at the time the King Louis the 16th was favorable to the, this Republican cause. He was a better King. They were, not all Kings are, are intrinsically bad. Some have good culture. Um, so, you know, that, that was one direction, um, that the world was going. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, um, it got subverted. British intelligence performed a very sophisticated set of operations, chaos operations that took and utilized the weaponized poor of Europe, especially to become weaponized battering rams against the state and all parts of the state, the good and the bad alike. And the Jacobin mobs turned in, turned the revolution into a bloodbath where everybody good and bad lost their heads. All mm -hmm. Ben Franklin's allies who had helped make the American revolution possible, um, all were killed. Marquis Lafayette avoided death because he was able to escape to an Austrian dungeon where he ended up sitting in a dungeon rotting for five years. In fact, Beethoven's story of, uh, Fidelio. If you want to watch an opera at some point, yeah, watch yeah, Beethoven's yeah. Fidelio. That's yeah. actually based upon an homage to Marquis de Lafayette and his wife, who actually did go and, um, live with him in the dungeon, um, and, uh, worked on a strategy to, uh, break him out. Get him out of there. <laughs> but yeah, so Benjamin, you know, uh, 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 uh Beethoven was was definitely a Promethean spirit of a high of a high degree. Um it was very much inspired by this idea. So, you know, you, you had all of this happening. So how does this bring into the, the manifest destiny idea? Well, the um, the original American colonies were bankrupt. So coming out of the American Revolution, they were they they were able to finally succeed in declaring political independence, but they had no economic independence. They had no development. They had only debt incurred from the war that none of the 13 states could possibly pay in a million years. They had no industry. They had no manufacturing. They had nothing. They just had a lot of, they had, they were agrarian. They had a lot of culture, largely because of Ben Franklin's work over decades, but they didn't have the means of doing much with their mental powers. So this was the next phase of the fight. And also they had a lot of empires other than the 13 colonies. Every other part of the Americas were owned by the British, the French, the Russian, and the Spanish empires. Yeah. Where did um, the Russian, where, where did they have? They weren't so much of a factor. They were Alaska and some, some of California oh, okay. down right, to, right. uh, North, Northern California where you have Fort Rus. Um, they never really played too bad of a role in anything. Whereas the Spanish and the French and the British empires did oh, play yeah. some much more nefarious, they're much more good at being bad. <laughs> and, uh, the British were the best at being bad, but. Part of it too involved, you know, Jesuitical operations as well. The Jesuits right. had taken firm control of the French colonies by this point and had uh, innovated new techniques of creating synthetic cults, like pseudo-Christian cults that had synthesized elements of the native traditions and gods with pseudo-Christian stories, passing off the Jesuit controllers as if they were like these demigods, right. um, giving divine commandments to the, the different natives, Mohawks and others would then worship these angels slash Jesuits and would then be used by them to carry out uh, various attacks and atrocities against um, the white colonialists. Now the white colonialists were in turn carrying out 
atrocities at various times against the natives. So you had this like revengeist type of policy of like an eye for an eye, you know, like, and nobody properly identified or some did, but not, not enough to, to do anything about it. The role of these Jesuitical controllers. And I won't say all Jesuits were a part of this, but the way the Jesuit system works is it's like a hierarchy of secret degrees of, of initiation. And the ones who are higher up understand the art of synthetic cult creation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had that. Um, and that, that is, is it correct to say too that the Venetians had their tentacles into all those countries then in the obviously the uh, British in the Britain in the France in the Spain Portugal I mean I imagine they would have their spies and their tentacles all into those countries yeah to some degree yeah, they or very no they did they did and I I think that you know the the the, the transplantation of the parasite that had moved from its home base of operations from Venice into England and also Amsterdam right, gotcha. um, was really consolidated by 1694, 95, when the, when the bank of England was set up after the glorious revolution, which installed a, uh, you know, a Dutch King William of Orange, who didn't even speak English into the British throne. Right. Um, and the, the, the grouping that carried out this, this coup d'etat in Britain was the the Venetian party run by at the time their 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 henchman their lead henchman was um Lord John Churchill <laughs> uh the Duke of Marlborough who became the the warlord in charge of the entire British British military um under Queen Anne and uh, after after William of Orange dies but he's the one who initiated and 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 helped facilitate this so-called glorious revolution and the and the creation of the private bank of England um as well as just concentrated the power and reorganized the power of the city of London as a new global hub of, of operations. But he, and again, he ran the Venetian party of Britain and even Benjamin Disraeli speaks about this Venetian party. Um, he described Benjamin Disraeli as actually one of the most candid former prime ministers of Britain to talk about this history. Not that he was at all really a good guy. He's just candid. And, uh, and he talks about how the, the, the Kings after, uh, George the first, uh, George the second, George the third, uh, all the kings after this, this period, after Queen Anne dies, were all, uh, Venetian doges. And, oh. you know, Disraeli says, you know, George the first, he was a doge. George the second, he was a doge. George the third, this is Benjamin Disraeli speaking, uh, says he tried not to be a doge, but he could never escape the, his, uh, Venetian constitution. Mm. um both there's a bit of a, a play on words there mm-hmm. um and george the third was a very sympathetic king like the more i look into george the third the mad king uh the more i, I kind of my heart goes out to him he was, ah. he, was <laughs> he was a creature born into a, a system that you know he he wanted to believe in the good and he had a lot of influence around him of people like ben franklin's uh close friend benjamin west was the court painter of philadelphia a brilliant painter was the 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 head of the British uh, Royal Academy of Painting, Fine Arts Academy, um, and was a close confidant, same age as King George the the third, and they had spent evenings evenings until like two three a.m. talking about philosophy, government, everything else, and uh, and his his uh, Ben Franklin was the godfather to his son, you know, and Ben Franklin is the one who sponsored a big chunk of his career and got him to Britain to in the first place in 16 uh 1768 
Um, and he just rose. His, his paintings are wonderful. He was the presence of an but get this right, an American from Philadelphia, confidant of Ben Franklin, becomes the president of the British Royal Society, uh, British Royal Academy of Fine Arts. How the hell does that happen? He's like organizing the king, and the king again. He's he really wants to believe in these noble republican ideals, right? Um, and it drives him, I think, nuts that he's 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 got to like operate as within this world of satanic evil while at the same time loving these the good that is possible and again it drives him over the edge um so again he tried not to be a doge but again couldn't like this really says break from his venetian constitution um but the venetians are everywhere and and there's evidence that things i don't fully understand i I kind of get it indirectly like there there was the creation of the jesuit order in 15 was it 40 Mm. by uh, ignatius loyola a spanish mercenary um this was a period when it was a, a Habsburg control over uh over Rome um the Habsburgs had been sort of used and a lot of these oligarchical families you got to keep in mind they're all inbred and, and even though different families operate different empires and these empires seem to often come into conflict from the top there's sort of an agreement amongst thieves to sort of manage the chaos together so there's an apparent uh, con- conflict which is not really a conflict they're all working ultimately on the same kind of global dominant formula and so the one component of this as far as gang counter gang operations because there's like nested degrees of you know synthetic cults that seem to be opposites to each other like different you know sects within the protestant sects within the christian uh, catholics who will right. then be induced to fight despite their better self-interest to work together. And then you'll have like, you know, counter-counter gang operations like the Jesuits set up when the the, the Catholics are feeling very vulnerable. Um, you'll have this thing set up as like a secret military of the, of the papacy, partially to defend the papacy, but also partially to keep control of the papacy, to keep it in line. Right. And they've got a, a very innovative technique of uh of chameleon like masquerading they're 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 able to just take the garb of anything and anyone that's part of their mandate to permeate and gain control and subvert uh operations from within or you know targets from within um which is why the jesuits didn't really develop a very good reputation um and again not all jesuits are like this a lot of the jesuits you'll find are really good people um they simply when they got to the different parts of the exams because it's a lot of constant self-examination from your superiors and it's a it's a chain of command structure some of them on their test decided to you know not kill the rabbit you know and they they were they were told that they i'm I'm, i'd be facetious here you know but they were told yeah you passed the test and their their life would be doing good things but they would never be allowed to then break past a certain glass ceiling whereas those who did kill the rabbit Passed the test, <laughs> and uh, they they were then they it, it, remi- it reminds me of that lecture that Jim uh, J- James Doyle did on narcissists, yeah. right? That was brilliant, and just yeah. you know, just it reminds you that like these the, these narcissistic type individuals that then they become part of these institutions that become narcissistic, and then obviously, what are they breeding? You know, at that point, absolutely, yeah, no, it's a self it's a self breeding system of uh, self generated evil. Um, and, uh, and it's really, it's very antagonistic to natural human sentiments. It's, it's, it's gross, but all of these, these, one of the things that all of these different oligarchs managing different territorial areas of the, of the Americas, they can agree upon is the need for stasis. Um, 
the only type of change which is permissible is war. So you can have change, a quantitative change of place based on like one group overtaking another group by war, whether fighting for whatever diminishing, like limited resource you, you can imagine, you know. Um, but in terms of growth of quality of people, that's it, that's not permitted. And so a big part of the, the century, even the full century before the American Revolution, which again, Graham Lowry goes through from 1630 mm-hmm. onward, is yeah. this idea of having a continent gaining control of the continent by this Republican movement to expel the oligarchical structures of hereditary power, hereditary authority, and all of their Byzantine intrigue. Yet that has to be uprooted from the Garden of the Americas so that a new type of system could thrive. Uh, premised on the John Winthrop idea, right? And, and what's contained in the Declaration of Independence and the, and the Constitution. These are good principles. Even if they're not followed, the point is, that's not to say that the principles in the Constitution and the Declaration are bad. It's just right. that they're not being followed, right? And people often, they, 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 they get confused over that. <laughs> yeah. um, so that, the, the idea was, okay, how do we, how do we get rid of that? And that involved over getting, getting across the, um, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the 13 colonies are, 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 uh, you got the, the Alleghenies and you got, you got a big mountain range and you got a very difficult terrain to get across. And, and, you know, the, the fight was always, how do we do that? Early on, they had a plan to, to expand, to push the British back and the British, what they did in, uh, 1774 was they created something called the, the Quebec Act, which mm-hmm. on the one hand, both bribed the, the Quebecois to, to keep them out of the American Revolution. Because there, there was a big danger of the Quebecois, the, the French Canadians, joining the 13 colonies together as the 14th colony. That would have changed things a lot. But they, they bribed them to keep them in control of the crown. And they did so partially by giving them all an expanded territory all the way down to the Ohio River. Mm. Um, so, so Quebec grew from being a tiny little region above the colonies all the way down to wrapping around like a belt, an iron belt to the Ohio River to keep them from having any ability to penetrate. Uh, beyond their certain allotted 13 colony region. Um, Sounds like NATO. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I'm sorry. That's how my, my mind works like that all the time when I'm listening to you guys. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. And that's history, right? Like when yeah, you're looking yeah, at totally. history properly, you're like, okay, that's how I'm going to understand what's going on here. Right. You know, my world's here. Um, and yeah, totally. So... <clears throat> The, the, the flanking operation of the American Revolution, the, they called, like, the reason why Ben Franklin and, and George Washington chose to call it the Continental Congress wasn't because it, it was the Congress of the 13 colonies. They had an idea of the continent, right? Uh, the Continental Army. It was the Continent Army. It wasn't the, the 13 colony army. Uh, army. army. Um, and a big chunk of that was, okay, how do we have that economic independence? So how do we, we've talked about colonial script. We've talked about the, the idea of having national currency emitted by and for the people for the purpose of developing internal improvements manufacturing because if you can get manufacturing you can start getting economic independence not just political independence because you really need to have the ability to have the means and not just the ends the ends are political independence maybe in the emancipation and freedom of the people but the means to carry that out is economic so they go together hand in hand and like i said the colonies after 1783 uh, the Peace of Paris, the colonies are bankrupt. They have no manufacturing, they have nothing. So Ben Franklin with his prodigies, people like Alexander Hamilton is a key figure who's the first U.S. Treasury Secretary. He's a, he plays a big role in all three of my books. Um, he is somebody who innovates the solution finally that helped the U.S. 
through its miraculously through its first tenuous 10 years of existence, where it almost was destroyed easily several times over economically and reabsorbed back into the, the British Empire. And he did that by um, unifying, by basically uh, creating a federal debt where formerly you just had 13 separate state debts that were unpayable under a national bank. Yes, the bank was, uh, you had private uh, uh, private investors who could invest in shares within the bank within certain ratios. Of course, the government was still a primary investor in the bank. Um, the bank was tied to the mandate of the constitution. And people say, oh yeah, he's a Rothschild stooge because he allowed private investors. And some of those investors were European banks. And some of them might've been Rothschild. I don't even know. I've never seen evidence that there was. I've seen people make the claim, but I've never seen that evidence. Mm-hmm. Point is, one of the key fa- factors of that is, yes, you could be, um, an investor, but you were not allowed to be a director and you couldn't determine direction. Only American citizens were allowed to be directors or determine the direction of the bank. Like what would be the behavior of the money that you would then circulate? Mm. Another component of uh, what made this work is that once that debt was federalized, all of a sudden it was turned into a new form of capitalization within the bank that was then tied to the emission of loans for farmers, for entrepreneurs, but also for the development of, of roads, of internal improvements of big canals like the Erie Canal later on was built under this type of project, this type of financing operation. Um, It was also, it gave the ability for the nation for the first time to collect duties on imports, which it didn't have private previously. Uh, There was no ability to enforce duties. You could say it in the previous, you know, the, 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 the article under the articles of confederation that happened before the U S constitution was, was uh, created or the, the, the Constitutional Convention, which was, again, largely a Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton baby um, who drove that thing. But under the Articles of Confederation, there was no way to either collect taxes um, or import duties on foreign goods coming in. Couldn't do that. So how was the U.S. going to get the money to both maintain its own existence, its own bait? It had no standing army. That was Alexander Hamilton who created the first American standing army, which you need as a defensive measure if you're going to have a world of antagonistic empires. Um he gave the the nation the ability, the the solution to uh, collect an, um, broader duties, but also then have free trade amongst the states. Because before the, the Constitution, there was no free trade enjoyed amongst each of the individual states. They were fighting for their own survival against each other. It was a nation divided amongst itself on more ways than one. Um, he was also... Hey, 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 Matt, in terms of the debt after yeah. the war, where... Like, who was that? If there were 13 states all in debt, who were they in debt to? Like, just people that were lending money to help them yeah. with the revolution? Like, where was, yeah. like, where was that, Mostly uh, that concentrated at? Mostly that. A lot of European banks, French banks, uh, pretty much a whole bunch of European banks, some American banks were lending That's to the right. government. Um, keep in mind, a lot of the American um, bankers, some were, were genuine patriots, other ones were British stay behind uh, right. traders. Some right. who right, right, right. Canada and, and set up British Canada. Other ones stayed behind acting American and, and actually just waiting to subvert it from within. Right. A lot of these people centered around the figure of, of Aaron Burr, uh, the vice president at a certain point, mm-hmm. the wannabe president of America, who was Hamilton's, you know, arch nemesis. Um, Hamilton even fought valiantly to get Jefferson, his so-called enemy, uh, elected president instead of Burr, which happened by like a one vote margin. It was, or 1% margin. It was crazy close. Wow. And it was done because, uh, Hamilton recognized that he, though he disagreed with Jefferson, he knew that Jefferson was not a traitor. Mm-hmm. He didn't like the fact that Jefferson was, was, 
way too on board with the uh, the British Imperial uh, philosophy of you know Adam Smith and John Locke and slavery. You know Jefferson didn't even free his slaves even in his will. Like at least Washington treated his slaves really well, and when he died in his will, he said, "You're all going to go free." Whereas Jefferson didn't he didn't even have the dignity with his like the biggest he had one of the biggest slave estates of all of, of the Americas in Virginia. And uh, he didn't even have the dignity to say in his will, my slaves, some of them, you know, at least one of them who I'm having children with uh, are going to be allowed to go free. He didn't even say that. So he was, he was a bit of a, a compromised character. But despite that, he wasn't a traitor, whereas Burr absolutely, absolutely was on the, the payroll of British intel. And there are letters to that effect, even from the ambassador, Anthony Mary, writing letters to British Home Office, uh, Foreign Office, saying uh, – Aaron Burr has just given us his full uh, cooperation to be our agent. And and this was discovered many years after Burr dies, unfortunately, this, this, these letters in archive. Uh, it would have been nice had they have been known uh-huh. while Burr was in trial. Because, you know, after Burr kills Hamilton, Burr has already set up the Bank of Manhattan in 1799. People say it was Hamilton. No, it was Aaron Burr. Right. Uh, this is the basis of Wall Street. This is a British fifth column operation, which has been there for the past 250 years. Excellent. Now, after killing Hamilton using guns that were that had formerly been used to kill Hamilton's son at the very same spot uh, in 1802 and the same spot in New Jersey where one of Aaron Burr's stooges kills Alexander Hamilton's 19-year-old son in a duel. The same, the same guns on the same location in New Jersey are selected by Hamilton and Burr to carry out this duel. You're going to tell me that was just a coincidence? People are like, I oh, just don't worry about it. It was a coincidence. I don't know the full story, but... Something no, machinery and Byzantine networks of saboteurs uh, running psyops. Undoubtedly, he killed uh, Hamilton's son, and Hamilton lost his uh, his his wits, his cool at that point, and agreed to the stupid duel that ended up getting him killed. Um, Burr has already attempted. By the time that he kills Hamilton, he had already attempted twice to break up the Union in a northern. Um, a northern confederacy that would be free free states that would join British operations of Canada, of, of Halifax, Montreal. They would become a new pro-British confederation, abolishing the Declaration and Const- Constitution under under Burr's control. That was the plan in, in 1800. If he were to become president, there are letters, uh, both with uh, Thomas Pickering, um, George Cabot. Another member of the junto of the the, the bad junto, the uh, the federal of the Federalist Party, uh, that most most of the Federalists were were enemies of the state. It was really just Hamilton who was like a, an arm again, oh, like an army of one, like Dante. Yeah, he was like try to keep the thing going, but when he was gone, his whole party turned into a, an aristocratic party of uh, of traitors. But, but so, but Monroe was hanging with them, and so was like uh, Madison and. Adams was still around and John Quincy yeah. Adams, right? I mean, they had some allies, right? Yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize it too much, but it came really wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I there was, there were still some good, some good uh, characters. Yeah, but, but it lost a lot after Hamilton died, and and so Burr had had failed in his attempt to have a northern and southern confederacy, both pro British, one slavery, one free. In eighteen hundred, he tried again in eighteen oh three when he was running for governor because he was a lame duck president, uh, vice president. He couldn't do anything. But New York is was just like today the engine of much of the Americas, and uh, and he needed to be governor in order to affect the next attempt to do the same thing, essentially break the Northern 
states free, New York would lead and join British, uh, the British colonies and, um, and let this, this black, you know, the black slave states have their own country and just, you know, break it up, divide to conquer. That again failed because again, Hamilton jumped in just like he did in 1800, made sure that, um, what's his name? Morgan Lewis became governor instead of, uh, instead of Burr in New York and Burr totally lost his shit. He really had to kill Hamilton and did. The third attempt um, that Burr manages to uh, try to break the, U- the USA once more was in 1807. And this is where I'm saying it would have been really nice to know about this letter between yeah. Anthony Mary and home office, um, the British ambassador, because Aaron Burr uh, was utilizing the newly acquired Louisiana territories that had just recently been purchased by Hamilton and uh, Jefferson uh, they'd been purchased by Napoleon, who was in desperate need of money to fight his Napoleonic wars. And he, like, you know, French colonies in the Americas were a, a low, a low priority. So they bought the the Louisiana territories, expanded their the nation by a factor of I don't know, like three hundred percent. I'm not too sure of the number, but yeah, huge. Um, and much of it was was uh, made free. So there was, uh, there were certain ordinances passed that would guarantee that those states that would be carved out of those territories would, for the most part, be free. But the, the big fight for the next 60 years was what would be the character as America would grow from 13 to today it's 50, but as it would grow through these, uh, it would acquire and create new states along the way. Would those states be free states or would they be, um, slave states? Yeah. You know, um, and that was a big, a big, uh, shaper of the ensuing 1810s, 1820s, 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, now Burr tried using these Louisiana territories, a, a third and last attempt at that period, um, which involved getting Jefferson to appoint as governor, one of Burr's stooges, Colonel uh, Wilkinson as governor of the territories. Um, Wilkinson was always a operative, an agent. And there's been books written about Wils, uh, Wilkinson's uh, allegiance to the Spanish Empire um, as a spy against the American Revolution and onward. Um, again, this was only found out, unfortunately, too, a little bit later. Um, part of the design of this conspiracy involves using American mercenaries acquired by Burr, funded by the British, um, along with British soldiers to both then take control of the Louisiana territories as well as New Orleans, declare war and take control of all Spanish possessions, and then um, overthrow Washington, Jefferson, depose him, and install Burr as the leader, and then declare the, the South free and, and have a new type of uh, state that now involves the Western territories as well. Unfortunately, there was somebody on that within that conspiracy, kind of like a Smedley Butler type. That's who I was just thinking about. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Butler. <laughs> yeah, we had a Butler back then too, and, and he was a, a senator, not a, probably a military guy as well, um, who blew the whistle. And uh, and he called it called out this conspiracy to Congress, brought brought Burr and many other plotters to, to court. There was actual court hearings, um, testimonials that are still transcribed. People can read on the records of people who were part of it, um, who pointed out what this plan was. There were already 40 boats provided by Britain. 75 mercenaries were caught, provided by uh, Britain. They were caught. Um, and uh, the the home, the headquarters of this operation were 
is Virginia. And, uh, and it was, a, it was a man, it was an estate owned by none other than Andrew Jackson. Oh, ah. no. <laughs> Andrew Jackson's yeah. home base. That was, that was his headquarters. Uh, I kid you not, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so th- this is the, the, the thing. And, and so there wasn't, unfortunately, sufficient evidence. Like, you know, this Anthony Mary letter would have been, again, so good. That did, that wasn't known. And there was only testimonies against Burr at the time and not insufficient evidence to properly, um, find him guilty on charges. And so he was acquitted. There's probably some bribes, other things I don't know about. He was acquitted, but the public sentiment, the people were not as dumb as they are today. And the people had such an aggressive negative. They hated Burr. You know, this is a very well-known case in 1807 America and his life became very quickly unlivable. And within a few weeks, he got a loan from John Jacob Astor. Um, forget the sum, but a big, a big loan to, uh, um, get on a, a I don't know if it was a ship or whatever, but he basically escaped to Canada right. where, um, how he got financed. I know he left, but I didn't understand like how. Yeah, it was through happened. a loan that uh, supplied his several months journeying, right. To get to Canada where then, uh, his, his nephew-in-law happened to be George Cabot, who at, at that time was the governor general of Canada, the British uh, controller of Canada. That was his nephew-in-law. Um, <laughs> so George Cabot then gives him letters of introduction to British Home Office, people like uh, Lord Castlereagh, um, Jeremy Bentham, the head of British intelligence, um, who was a complete pedophile, a rampant opium-addicted orgy loving freak who chose to have his head severed upon his death and embalmed placed underneath uh, a stuffed version of his body which was on public display i think until like 1980 or something but with it so people could actually see his rotting head under his body uh embalmed it was nasty nasty character right um but he lived with bentham in his in his manner for five years that's where burr had lived between 17 1807 and 1812, right. he lived in Bentham's house, describing this process to a relative, I don't know, I think it was his daughter, as the best time of his life. And from certain certain uh, scraps of his diary, diary entries that have survived, we know that this time was filled again with opium, heavy uses of opium and orgies, a lot of prostitutes. Um, he describes Bentham. For the war. <laughs> yeah. Sex, <laughs> drugs, and, and no rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> He's got uh, a lot of things were rolling around there. It was, uh, yeah, it was bad. So anyway, there so was, then uh, is, so then is Burr involved in the war of 1812 in terms of him coming back? I mean, I mean, the timing seems suspicious. He comes back three weeks before the war started. Um, he's deployed back with a new strategy, right? And he's been meeting with the highest level British, uh, grand strategists like Lord Castlereagh and, uh, and many others the whole time. So the fact that, yeah, he, I agree with you. I think that it's much of a, too much of a coincidence that the war of 1812 is launched right after he, he returns. Um, that work I just didn't do. I don't know. I don't know if that, if the, the, the smoking gun evidence has been destroyed or not of some of those letters that we, we really want to know. Um, but undoubtedly, um, probably. And, um, what we do know is that. was involved hmm? we know that well we know jackson was involved in terms of being in the military at that point he becomes a, a war hero in this time um you know it was largely because the american revolution almost 
came undone at this point. The War of 1812 is a sloppy war. It probably could have been avoided by wiser statescraft of, of the, on the American side of things, uh, who didn't have to be so hot-headed. But the war did happen. And um, we know that the, nas- the, the, second, or the first national bank had been permitted under Madison to expire. And uh, with its expiration, America, the United States didn't really have too much to carry out a defensive strategy against the British. It was incapable of paying soldiers. The, the finances went into disarray. All of the states went back into having their own little mini uh, issuances of local state currencies. Every individual like local mm-hmm. bank were emitting their own currencies. There was no unifying currency function. There was no ability to, again, collect duties on imports to gain revenue for the state to manage the army or any other functions of the government. So things were going bad fast. And I think that uh, luckily Madison had the wits to realize his his bloody error by thinking because he believed a lot of the propaganda of the time that had painted Hamilton's National Bank as a Rothschild uh, evil uh, aristocratic bank for the rich. And and it was that propaganda that was rampant that uh, induced a slightly less wise Madison to say, "Okay, we're going to get rid of it. Um, See, I always wondered about that. Yeah, he's he's not a bad guy. He just he didn't know. Um, he should have known, but he didn't know. And and he luckily learned from his mistake. And and he and Jefferson both worked to revive that bank. I think it was in eighteen fifteen or something. Yeah, sixteen. Yeah. Yeah, and um and with that came a huge tool to again unify the nation's currencies. Give uh and 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 it was very important to have credit. Like the idea of credit was trust. Trust involves you know like you you need to have competence and stability and a, a climate where investors could have faith that they weren't going to just pour their money into fire. And right. if your nation is a basket case, it's like, this is the reason why China is having is had so much trepidation to invest in Iraq or Syria. It's not like they don't want to build infrastructure in Iraq or Syria. It's that Iraq and Syria are on fire and it's, it's not a possible climate. It hasn't been for large scale investments into infrastructure, the sort of which that that China certainly does want to build with the, the Belt and Road Initiative and other things going through that region. Same thing for Africa. You know, that's why the, the, these regions are constantly being lit on fire by arsonists who want to have regime change operations to keep them from having a climate favorable to real economic growth. So that was the sort of thing that um, that had to happen. And the, and the National Bank permitted that, especially under Nicholas Biddle, who is a close associate of Hamilton, a great patriot, who's often very, very much maligned as being, again, a Rothschild stooge. The irony is that the actual Rothschild Rothschild stooges are the ones who killed Hamilton, set up the Bank of Manhattan, worked with Jeremy Bentham, and then what is, you know, killed Hamilton's uh, second national bank in 1836 under Jackson. And what we do know is that in 1815, the earliest uh, recorded letter of anybody talking about Jackson becoming president is from Aaron Burr, who is now reconstituting his machine that he had formerly neglected. And now his machine is being brought back into a play. And he writes a letter to, I think, his nephew saying that we have to make Andrew Jackson uh, the president. Since he's attained a certain hero status, we can now use him for that end. Um, One of his other associates is a a fellow named, uh, um, uh, um, forget it, I forgot his name all of a sudden. It'll come to me later. So... This this now goes into play, and the the Whigs who are work, who are the Hamiltonians who have been working to revive uh, protectionism, revive national banking. People like Henry Clay is yeah. a key figure who dub, who coins the term American system 
of political economy in opposition to the British free trade school that had you worship money. He is, is very clear in his speeches and writings that are available of what this American system thing is okay. as very, it's a qualitatively different way of thinking. Um, they become now the leaders at, at a certain point. He's secretary of state, people like John Quincy Adams, again, is a leading figure of this under first John, John Monroe, um, James Monroe, sorry. Um, and then he becomes president. And he's an enemy of these, these, the, these fifth columnist British deep state traders who are all circling around the figure of, of Burr and, and Jackson. Um, and under Quincy Adams, you know, you have not only a foreign policy premised around a, a community of, of sovereign nation states internationally. That was John Quincy Adams international strategy, but the Monroe doctrine was formulated by John Quincy Adams too, premised around the idea of keeping the Americas as a whole free from enmeshment in British and French and Spanish imperial intrigue. So keep them out, extract the the weeds, um, and don't get enmeshed into their messed up games in Europe. Like don't is, get into foreign like, wars. Is mm-hmm. that like an early form of protectionism? Like, like, is that kind of where it started? It started earlier. Um, protectionism itself began in the Renaissance in Italy and Germany and then in England uh, and France. It was something that, that was that was recognized early on during that Renaissance period that you could have a, a, a you could favor the growth of local commerce, local industries and farmers by putting a tax of, of an import tax to make it more expensive to purchase things from abroad. And that way you can cultivate and stimulate the growth of your own right. uh, needs. So it had been done to every every time it had been done, it works. And even the British Empire recognized that, which is why the British, ironically, would always promote the use of free trade for the victims uh, that it wanted to rape, but it would never actually use free trade itself. Britain kept control internationally of a monopoly of, of manufacturing by having protectionism ports itself. Uh, so, right. As Ironically. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's good for, uh, yep. it's not good for me. Um, and that's also sort of like why Britain would promote the idea of the Euro, right? It was right. global Britain and the city of London was promoting the euro through the seventies, the eighties. And then finally, when it culminated, Britain's like, Oh yeah, uh, we got an economic crisis. Right. We're going to we're keep our, our, our pound, but you guys have fun. We'll join you later. Okay. We promise. <laughs> uh, that is so Venetian, man. That whole globalization model is so Venetian. It's ridiculous. Totally. Oh um, yeah. You get your enemies to destroy themselves, right? You, you uh, have minimal personal input and the Venetians call this the Tautius Gaudens, the, the principle of the third that wins. So. Uh, the, the person who can get the person A and person B to fight and kill each other, person right. C, if they were able to do that, they were the winner. And the most effective, uh, the person who, the power that is the most uh, effective in that game is the one who can have the greatest amount of degrees of separation of their mind right. and the, the effects of their their intention as far removed as possible. So you want as many gears separating you from the, the guilty hand that, that <laughs> stabs the person in the back that you wanted to kill. Right. Yeah, right. Um, and so most people don't even know what is motivating them with what's right. And so um, many parallels to today. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes when you look at that in that clock, right, there's all these gears in the clock. Sometimes that most insignificant looking gear is the one that is actually uh, making everything else move. And your eye is imme- immediately like attracted to the big gear. And you're like, look at that big gear. Look at the United States. They must be the most evil country in the world, destroying all of these little countries for like 70 years. And you're like, yeah, they're big and they're easy to see, but what's actually making them move in this very anti-American way since JFK died. 
And you're like, oh, it's this little thing that actually is much more powerful because it's more strategically placed. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, the whole Manifest Destiny thing, I mean, I know we're running late, but I would just say the idea that came out of people like John Quincy Adams, Hamilton earlier, Ben Franklin especially, and all the way through the American uh, uh, early colonists like uh, Winthrop and Mathers, um, and then with their their previous heirs in uh, you know Thomas More's Britain and Erasmus, there was like look at Thomas More's Utopia, you know right. that was brilliant. Um, yeah, good lecture, Matt. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, that was the idea. Is you know we want to create and Thomas More's Utopia is how do we create? It's like his Republic. It's like his City of right. God from Augustine. It's how do you imagine a world that is premised around natural law and justice. Right. That looks nothing like the type of hypocritical crap that we're actually doing in our our world. So we have now a template, and it's a very playful experiment, but it's tied to this world on the other side of the ocean, right, in, in Utopia. Very different from Francis Bacon's piece of trash, uh, <laughs> occult uh, New Atlantis. Very different. Francis Bacon is part of the Venetian operations to destroy this movement and and to Delphically sort of take it and then make it, turn it inside out into a, again, a, a black magical, uh, a black magic cult, uh, piece of insanity. But so the whole thing is premised around the idea of, mm. we have this, this, this harmony of the universe. God, God, the creator is a creative loving God that created the universe, both with order and with grace and love, right? So that there's, there's an ability with that idea to see a resolution to the freedom duty paradox, right? That we can learn by loving our higher joys of loving wisdom, pursuing wisdom and finding pleasure in that, that we find is more important than even the pleasure we get from the senses. Doesn't mean we, we dismiss the senses. Right. We don't have to like whip ourselves every time we feel like, you know, an impulse to eat cake or, or, you know, like we, the senses can be good and are good, but they can't be, they have to be organized by wisdom and temperance. So you don't have too much of a good thing or too little of a good thing. You look for enjoying the good according to wisdom. And and so the sensual and the uh, psycho spiritual can grow and improve together. It's, it's a deeply embedded in Confucian philosophy too, right? This this of of man, you know, as I was Mm -hmm. from being uh, in the first stage, you know, when I, I I was just learning how to, how to think. And, And by the time you're by the age 50, you're like learning how to trust your, your emotions. And by the time you're 60, you can, completely uh give into your your instincts and know that you're on the side of justice um so that that idea um is is embedded also in in hindu uh philosophy too there's you know and and we see it in the in the vedas and various other teachings within buddhism we see it all over the place as a concept which is taking different clothing but overall the idea is you know if that's the case then the type of political economic laws that we allow ourselves to be to govern our society have to reflect that dual uh, need for order, coherent stability, but at the same time be flexible enough to allow for creative change and improvement. That's tough. Usually if you're going to have one, it goes into chaos. And if you have the other one, it goes into tyranny. So to be able to have both requires, again, this playful wisdom, right? Like talk about the good teacher, right? Um, and And so part of that is to, go beyond your limits, both inside of yourself spiritually by making discoveries, but then expressing them 
like Ben Franklin did, he discovered metaphysically laws of the universe, but then he had to test it out in the physical world by building things uh, to test his thoughts out. And we found that the universe resonated back to the good ideas by allowing us to then have greater quality of life. We could support more people at a higher standard of living. And, you know, nature, we, he had his work on the Society for the Manumission of Slaves with Hamilton, the two major leaders, and John Jay, um, was key mm-hmm. to not just free slaves. And, you know, it was Ben Franklin who, who, who produced, who designed the emblem of, you know, am I not a man and a brother, right, with a, with a, with a black mm-hmm. slave uh, and in chains, right? And that was a powerful, very popular thing that Ben Franklin promoted um, for, as part of the manumission for, of slave society. But it was also premised around the idea that everybody has access and the divine right to learn the best of science and the best of all of, of what civilization has to offer, while at the same time keeping and cherishing your, your, your different culture that you're a part of, which is why when you look at how people like, um, again, Hamilton and, 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 uh, and uh, ben, ben Franklin and uh, oh, so many of their, their allies how were they teaching the, uh, the, the Cherokee um, regarding the, the schooling system? It was based upon cherishing the, the native traditions and mythologies of the different tribes of the United States, of the Cherokee especially, while at the same time giving them access to uh, tools and far- modern farming techniques, knowing that the technique right, yeah. is not something that's going to crush your, 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 your cultural beauty. You know, right, you can have right. both work together. And through that, discover what makes us all human first, made in the image of God first, and then, um, you know, Cherokee second, black, white, whatever, like, but that becomes then man, woman, whatever. These are all beautiful things we cherish, but what unites us is this common universal quality that we have first and foremost in our identity. And, and so I think all of these things today are, are very confused. People think, oh, it's one or the other, you know, if you're universal, you have to be a tyrant. Right. Oh, if you're, you know, if you're free, then you have to just look at what differentiates you physically. Right. Uh, it's like, no, you can have both. Um, and I think when you look at what China is doing in terms of how get a, like, just ignore the, the slander for, for a bit, like the Council on Foreign Relations slander about what they tell you China is doing about the, the Belt and Road Initiative. But, um, it's very much akin to that better approach of, like the, 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 the training of new, of engineers in the Uyghur region of Muslim China or Tibet, where you have a, a big Buddhist population, but you have also the biggest rates of growth of quality of life per capita GDP literacy has gone from being like, I think it was like 19% in 1940 to being something like 99% today with an average uh, lifespan of 72 years of age today, where it was something like 38 years of age back like 60 years ago. So, I mean, the rate of improvement, and that's, that's Tibet and similar factors are, are visible in Xinjiang. And you could look at the cultural centers where they're celebrating um, Muslim Uyghur uh, traditions, oral traditions. There there's, there's songs, there's dances that they're, they're still learning. They're not crushing their local dialects or languages. They're also just happened to learn also Mandarin. Um, so there's, there's a, there is a blend, a, a, a balance of both the universal need for progress, for improvement of our life and our, our and the environment that we're born into. China's green green deserts, you know, there's now more more bioactivity on the earth than there was 20 years ago, primarily because of India and China's economic activity, mm. primarily, you know, desalinating water, moving water from 
flood flooding regions in the south into the the drought ridden north area. India is doing the same thing with reforestation. Um, and it's very similar to the, you know, when you look at the rail lines that are driving this process through the, the new Silk Road, it's very similar to what people like, again, John Quincy Adams launched this idea of a continental development strategy for the Americas as a whole around big projects with the National Bank as the instrument to provide directed credit for low interest, long-term projects that would then create the basis upon which the bank would be capitalized and the, the debt that you incur would be extinguished once you build the big project. And the big projects would then increase the the abundance of society to such an extent that not only would you extinguish the debt that you incurred to build the project, but you had so much more free energy, so much more abundance that you could then reinvest back into the system uh, to create things that were unimaginable a decade earlier. And this was expressed beautifully with the growth of the original Republican Party around Abraham Lincoln, very different from the beast that took over with with Dick Cheney. But – but this is what the transcontinental railway was all about. This is why there was plans to extend the transcontinental railway through, through Colombia yeah. into Alaska after after the Russians had saved the USA and sold Alaska to the Americans. The idea was to then extend that rail with telegraph into the the Eurasian landmass through the Bering Strait, um, where it would connect into the Trans-Siberian Railway that had begun with American locomotives built in Philadelphia with the direction of American patriots working in Russia with Tsar Alexander II and many others, um, and, and Alexander III, and even Nicholas, but Nicholas got stupid. And um, and that was supposed to then connect into China, in, through Manchuria, into Eurasia. You had Bismarck doing the same thing, adopting the American system of Hamilton under the, the Friedrich List reforms that were unifying the German state for the first time, but around protectionism. And around state credit for rail, and that would that was tying into the the Berlin to Baghdad railway to help the Ottoman Empire that was becoming very weak and outdated, and they wanted to modernize. That would have worked. So there was this whole electric life that was all spreading around the world. And um, China, you know, Sun Yat-sen yeah. was establishing the first uh, presidency of China, the the Republic in 1911, modeled on the best of what Lincoln was was bringing to the table with the the three principles of the people. Yeah. Um, and he laid out grand designs in his development. Um, he had a, a, a program called the, uh, the International Development of China. It's a book you can get on archive.org. It's a beautiful book. And he lays right. out what essentially oh, yeah. is today the Belt and Road Initiative in 1921, yeah. uh, 1920. And it, you know, it takes a while for obviously decades go by. This thing doesn't move because right. the international world goes insane with, with two world wars that shouldn't have happened, imperial both, then a cold war that shouldn't have happened, imperial, complete. Um, so the climate needed to have the sort of long-term patient investment that was required for these things to manifest and to give humankind the ability to have the space spiritually that we needed to blossom. That was never, that was always aborted in the cradle. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, what you're seeing right now with with China coming out the way they have since 2013, this goes back to the uh, the Eurasian birth of a Eurasian manifest destiny. That's why, again, just to just to clearly show it, volume yeah. wow, three, there it is. Let's go. There's a couple others. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that, right? So, all three. Wait, there we go. We got all That's three. Cool. <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah, like volume one, uh, you know, it's it's. It kind of worked out nicely because there you have the unfinished symphony just to get across that America is more than people think it is, but it's less than it should have been um, in that sense. So the, the painting of Ben Franklin sitting with the American delegation at the Peace of Paris 
is kind of cool because it was never finished. The British delegation never, never actually agreed to the American independence. So it's an unfinished painting. Ironically, the painter of that, remember I, I mentioned uh, the yeah, character used, ben, yeah, right. Benjamin West, right? Yeah. So that was Benjamin West who painted that, a beautiful painting that was never completed. And it, it I think, speaks to the story well. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you have the Open versus Closed Systems Collide Volume 2, just to get across the recapturing of the U.S. and the loss of this potential. Um, with JFK and Zbigniew Brzezinski representing two different paradigms of the, the, the genuine versus illegitimate so-called U.S. manifest destinies. Um, Zbigniew representing the, the Pax Imperium, Pax Romana idea, whereas Ben, uh, John F. Kennedy represented much more this Mathers city on a hill, you know, Monroe doctrine type of approach. And, you know, one represents more the Roman Republic idea. The other one represents more the Roman Empire idea. Rome didn't have to become an empire. It didn't have, you know, could have saved its soul and probably not collapsed had it retained its, it listened to Cicero and not allowed Cicero to go the way the Socrates or Christ oh, did. Oh, that you was know? brutal. So you have That's such a tough story. Oh. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And then the third one is then finally Ben Franklin's revenge in a sense, you know, and we don't know. Where it's going. <laughs> yeah. Man, uh, man, we, we, we got to do it again, man. This I is, know. This is just we too much fun. <laughs> You let us know. We'll, well, we'll, we'll stay in touch with you. We know <laughs> anytime, how. Anytime, anytime. You guys want to just get it, man. Shit, I'm down. Anytime. We, we want to let you get some sleep, man. I we know. know you're you're pushing that midnight hour back there. We're past it by now. No, we hit the two hour mark. This is perfect. Uh, this is what I was going for. Uh, 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 to the two. And I like yeah. your t-shirt you got on. I see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. No, manifest essence. Manifest essence. My favorite shirt. <laughs> yeah, definitely give our love to Cynthia yeah, and uh, tell her to keep on doing her awesome research oh, and writing yeah. those essays, man. They are. Whenever you guys want to want to have an interview, yeah, let's get her let on her know, too. and uh, I'm sure she'd be more than happy to uh, to join you and and talk about some of her research lately has just been extraordinarily. It's mild. been yeah. brilliant. I've been reading all we we read all your guys' stuff. We love it. That's <laughs> oh, cool, guys. Well, yeah, you, you want to ideally have like a little. My friend Jerry was saying, yeah, that this. Re- this research is amazing, but you want to have a little cat on your lap or something to hold because it's kind of scary. <laughs> ah, I know about all that, but hey, he can have his cat. If he needs to. It's true. Hey, guys. Terrifying and awesome. Hey, brother. You yeah. have a good, yeah, have a good weekend back there. Yeah. And uh, right. we'll be in touch. All right. Drive safe today and uh, I'll catch you guys later. Bye. Okay. Well. God bless. Bye. Yeah, God bless. Bye.